Hello and welcome to Read It For The Pictures, the comic book podcast where we read it for the pictures. I'm Dave Clark, and with you is the man who's sliding bread and water under my cell door on the condition I keep talking about comics, Neil Caput. How you doing, Neil? I'm doing good, slave. So, this week we have... Grumpy Cat and Garfield, number one, written by Mark Evanair and illustrated by Steve Oy. Also, Seven to Eternity, number eight, written by Rick Remender, created by R- Rick Remender and Hiromo Pena, and drawn by James Heron, with colors by Matt Hollingsworth. Yeah, uh, Seven to Eternity is a little bit of a first for us because it's the first issue we've talked about that could be described as a fill-in. But before we get to that and trying to wrestle with comparing one artist to another, let's dive into Grumpy Cat and Garfield, number one. Now, this was your choice, and I... Yes, it, it kind of baffled me, so why don't you tell us a bit about it? I chose this not because of my borderline unhealthy love of cats, but because it was strange. I didn't know what to make of the concept of Grumpy Cat and Garfield teaming up. I know that both are the respective popular mimetic cats of their eras, Garfield from the era of print, Grumpy Cat from the information age. But putting them together in a full-length comic, I keep thinking back to Jeff Goldblum in Jurassic Park saying, scientists always want to do something because they can before they realize that they should, or whatever. Yeah, I I hadn't considered this in terms of a meeting, like of mimetic cats from across the ages. Who knows, maybe we'll get Top Cat in an issue down the line. Mate, if I'm understanding correctly, Grumpy Cat originated with just a photo of an angry-looking cat that spread around the internet? Indeed. And the owner of said cat, who just has the misfortune to have a pouty-looking face. What has apparently licensed the cat and made a lot of money off of it, which extends to things ranging from little golden books for children, a made-for-TV movie with Parks and Recreation's Aubrey Plaza as said grumpy cat, and this comic which was preceded by another Grumpy Cat comic that established the Grumpy Cat comics universe. That is an odd thing to say, to think about. Well, it appears there's only two characters in the Grumpy Cat-verse, which are Grumpy and her happy-go-lucky, dim-witted brother, Pokey, who acts a lot more like my cat. Oh yes, we'll, we have real life cat comparisons to make. Yeah, I was a little bit shocked going in because, like, it, I guess the biggest challenge with this sort of project is 
like Garfield is also a grumpy cat, so you need to differentiate their personalities. And it seems they've gone with making like Garfield just sort of a just how do I put this? A light hearted douchebag whereas Grumpy Cat is a sadist. Well, Garfield has been pretty nasty to Odie, too. I think the change is in the treatment, because they're cats of different memes of cynicism in America. Garfield was created in 1979, shortly after the Watergate incident. And 78, buddy. Oh, 78. But yeah, Garfield represents the lack of innocence then, because he... He doesn't have any interest in the world, but he's still reluctantly part of it. He says, I hate Mondays, even though he is a cat and doesn't have a job, but he accepts that there are Mondays. Grumpy Cat, on the other hand, is more of the nihilistic cynicism of the internet age. The one that just wants to see the world burn and is actively interested in trolling people around her, if possible. See, maybe a more generous reading of Garfield is that he hates Mondays because he doesn't like seeing John upset when he comes home. That's possibly true. Are you saying that John is a cat abuser? I mean, that's a dark reading, but I was being generous in saying that John comes home from a Monday worn out and beaten down, and that upsets Garfield, and that's why he hates Mondays. So Garfield does have empathy. But I was also thinking that if we go by the Garfield minus Garfield interpretation, since John isn't aware that his cat is sapient, it's just an unhinged man yelling about his pathetic life at a cat. Oh dear. But yes, um, in the coming back to this comic specifically, it's yeah, it doesn't really work unless, like, Garfield is actually, like, having thoughts and pulling pranks and what have you. Well, we're falling into the first issue syndrome here, where the premise doesn't actually happen until the last page. Ah, uh, yes. But, um, there's enough weirdness to... I think there's enough weirdness to pull us along so far. Yeah, it's, um... It's a little with yeah, it's a little bit of a struggle to find things to talk about with the art because like it is fundamentally a Garfield comic and they well, the uh, artist has more freedom to define the grumpy cat stuff and the grumpy verse than the Garfield side because unfortunately we don't get the artist's inter- individual interpretation of Garfield because they're drawing the house-style Garfield that Jim Davis has been milking and making fortunes for reasons that are quite beyond me for decades now. Can you come so up you with could... the idea of a cat that likes lasagna? No? I thought so. But yes, uh, returning to the comic, there is... They've used a bit of a trick to differentiate the Garfield stuff from the Grumpy Cat stuff. It seems the Grumpy Cat stuff has thicker line work on it. And they're also using, like, 
photos, or it's not quite a photo, but like a texture on the walls and carpet. That's a good point. Also, note that the characters in the Garfield side have a different lettering. And that they do. It's it's kind of hard to see, but you'll know it when you see it. It's, ah, yeah. Garfield talks with these. It seems like there's a little bit more spacing in his font. True. As well as the fact that Gar, the characters, the bad guys, so to speak, are rendered slightly more realistically than John, who has the huge eyes that. I mean, John does. John very briefly appears with his ginormous eyeballs and, that are mainly covered with by his eyelids, just showing kind of a low bending squint of despair. Yeah, but oh yeah, I I see it now. Yeah, the the human characters outside of. The Garfield stuff are are more realistically proportioned than the yeah John and the mailman who shows up briefly, but yeah they're still like still fairly cartoony, and also John's house has hideous lime green walls. Well, that's a standard of Garfield. And One of many reasons why. John should be happy that he lives in a comic strip where time doesn't go forward because that means he doesn't get to the inevitable conclusion of him hanging himself. Jesus, man. But, yeah, the like the houses across the road from Garfield are purple, red, and blue. The sky is, like, just perfect blue. Yeah, it's... Garfield... Like... It's it's another way to differentiate the two that Garfield comes from a very cartoony world and Grumpy Cat is comes from a more grounded world. Like the most um, crazy thing that happens in the Grumpy Cat side is a cat picks up a board game where I don't know Garfield's getting on a computer to um, pull a prank on the dog on his side. So, yeah, at least I'm, well, yeah, going into this comic, I have to set up the differences between the two, and I guess that's, yeah, that's a pretty effective way to do it. Grumpy Cat is is a bit more grounded, realistic, and sadistic, and Garfield is is just a cartoon prankster. Yes, also, Grumpy Cat has the proportions of a relatively normal cat, so does Pokey, and their expressions do fall into the general realm of expressions you might see on a normal cat, whereas Garfield is has giant feet and is apparently capable of bipedal locomotion. Yeah. It's, um, it's odd to imagine who the audience for this thing is. I guess they could sell it in 
in ch- like children's book sections of the stores, or I mean, it does seem aimed at kids, and it does have two properties that are iconic. Maybe you'll have more insight to this because you're American, but I never understood the appeal of Garfield at all. I didn't really either, but then I have a much higher standard for cats. Were newspaper comics more of a thing in the U.S.? They were. They used to be a really big thing, and now they're dying off. I'm not sure newspapers in general have much longer, certainly the comic strips, as they keep shrinking and shrinking size, don't. Personally, once Calvin and Hobbes ended in 1996, I stopped caring. Now, that was a comic with a great cat, as well as being a great comic in general. But this... I can't imagine this took a lot of money to produce, so... I'm sure it nominally makes more profit than it than it costs to create. Yeah, all said and done, this is this comic is more interesting as a cultural artifact. And thinking about like the business decisions that went into its creation more than well, more than it is to read. Maybe for a younger kid who. I don't know, really likes cats, or these cats in particular. But I was engaged based on how horrifying the plot is, that the bad guy's this pet mogul who's invented a device that forces cats to act like dogs, so apparently they're more marketable. It, why he doesn't just think of the fact that people already have dogs is beyond me, but... His plan is first to test it by getting his goons named Snoop and Slither to kidnap the two least friendly cats ever, Garfield and Grumpy, so they can be test subjects. So this guy is the most disgusting, depraved, evil villain in comics. And I say that in the week that Nazi Captain America nuked Las Vegas. I Yeah, I imagine well let's not beat around the bus, he's just a cartoon villain. It's like, oh the heroes are cats, oh well he really likes dogs and he wants cats to be like dogs. Mohaha. There's yeah. Well, yes, they're not even trying for subtlety here. He actually says Money is my idea of the perfect pet. But just the idea of defying a cat's will, violating them so profusely by forcing them to act in a manner befitting of dogs. I would say that I want this villain to die, but that's too good for him. I'm thinking of something more like a Promethean punishment, where vultures tear at his liver every day and it grows back every night only to be torn out the next day for all eternity. Man, you took this comic way harder than I did. Well, what else is there to take? I mean, the art 
is, I'd say, good enough for what it's trying to do. I do kind of like the expressions they give Pokey as he's going on and on in the fantasy sequence about how the bad guy's agent is apparently going to offer them 60 zillion dollars. And we see this cute sequence where Pokey's going on at everything Grumpy Cat could get, and Grumpy's just imagining herself sleeping in all those locations, like the king-size bedroom, the Olympic swimming pool, the giant game room with every game in the world, including the ones that don't even come out until next week. Actual dialogue. Yeah, that's that's an alright gag. But yeah, as far as, like, when we try and find little tricks that the comic does, there's, like, I don't know, there's a bit of blur, they use a bit of blurring when Pokey's chasing after the car. Um, there's that, like, the repeated, like, um, Grumpy Cat sleeping in the same places gag. Um, and I suppose you could count the repeated panels with Garfield watching the TV, but... Yes, with... Oh, also, there's, like, a lighting bloom on, uh, Grumpy Cat, like, when she's sleeping next to the window, there's a bit of bloom from the light hitting her, which... Right, they actually get texture effects on Grumpy's world. You can even see, like, they use a Photoshop filter of some kind, a pattern to create the carpet. It's nothing elaborate, but it does indicate that Grumpy's world isn't entirely flat. Yeah. Um, You've had some experience working with kids in your job. Um... I don't suppose you've um, had more experience reading kids' comics? Not really, because the comics I brought in to school environments were standard Marvel and DC stuff, albeit with me blocking out some of the phrases that might not be friendly for children. The comic, they weren't really reading comics at school, and schools I went to didn't really have the budget to get books in period, much less the comics themselves. So other than what I did to try to brighten their tragic lives and give them a ray of sunshine and a cloudy existence, this, I don't really have a lot of experience in what kids would read of their own volition. Yeah, well, color color me confused still about Garfield. Well, you know there's a lot more comics in general than there would have been like 15 years ago, even though they, the industry in the direct market is dying, there still are comics, and there still are channels in which you can sell comics, bookstores, online storefronts like Comixology, Amazon, etc. So I imagine this exists because it makes profit. How much profit is debatable? Probably not that much, but enough. Yeah. Garfield Grumpy... Oh, sorry. Grumpy Cat Garfield. It exists. Well, I guess you won't be buying the next issue of this. I won't either. I might try that Fruit Ninja comic they have advertised in the back. 
Oh, I'm not sure I got that in the digital coffee. Well, I'm mainly getting it because it has a Jetpack Joyride bonus story. That's my favorite mobile game, insofar as there are any mobile games worth spending time on. Yeah, maybe we'll have to come back to that. But, yeah, as far, like, as, far as the artist's concerned, I wouldn't, like... I wouldn't say they're a bad artist. I, I, they did exactly what this comic called for. And they probably didn't have room to do anything else. Yeah, the um, there's been other Grumpy Cat comics, so they might they might be a established house style to work within. They're always disappointed when comics have a house style because comics have the most freedom not to do that. Even with superhero comics, there are so many ways that artists interpret the different characters. Like, the way, say, Mark Bagley draws Spider-Man is different from the way Todd McFarlane drew Spider-Man, or the way Alex Ross paints Spider-Man. Just like how you'll see different ways Batman is rendered. Like, does he have tiny ears or super long ears is he does he have a sinewy build or like a beefy build there's there's room there to at least experiment with the way the characters are have been portrayed maybe not as much room as there could be but there is some room which is more than i could say for this yeah i i'll try to object to the idea of a house style in principle like obviously, there's like the ba- like the bad version of it where I well uh, like some of the older Archie stuff comes to mind where it's very very strict what is and isn't in the house style, but um something like Hellboy has maintained somewhat of a consistent vision and tone despite shaking up artists over the years, and I'm including the BPRD stuff in there as well. Like, coming on to our next book, uh, James Harron did a BPRD story, and it managed to fit basically within that the aesthetic of BPRD, where, like, I don't know, let's take our boy Frank quietly. He wouldn't exactly fit on those books. Does that make sense? Well, that does... But even so, BPRD does have a fairly flexible art house style as long as as long as you're going to do like moody art with a lot of blacks while having the capability to do outlandish action scenes with all kinds of monsters you can do fine in the Mike Mignola verse for this there was only one other seven to eternity artist one Hiromo Pena and I don't think the art matches up very well to his. Yeah, it's um, like when you think about all the BPRD artists, like the sort of one one commonality between all of them that comes to my mind at least is they don't use very thin lines. Like there's a lot of, uh, like some like the figures are fairly blocky, and there's like they have good body acting but as far as like wrinkles of the face and folds of the fabric they're not um over elaborated on 
where Jerome Pena, who is the guy who did the first six issues of this, I believe. Yeah, he um he spent the first six issues putting lots of detail into every single aspect of the figures and backgrounds, and then we get to the James Harron's issues, num- number eight specifically, and it's a bit a lot more simplified. That's true, and I normally I I might be going on about how disappointing that is because of the Kuromo Pena is not only a different artist, but he's one who puts so much detail into his work that any issue of his is an event. I was reading an interview before publication of this comic with Rick Remender, the writer, and he's talking about how he tries to be economical with the way he writes pacing and dialogue because Opinia takes like three to five work days on a single page, which on the one hand that does set up a pretty high standard. On the other hand, there are aspects in which I like James Heron's art better. And I don't want to go on about how the quantity of detail is what makes one artist better than the other because it doesn't really work that way yeah although there is an aspect of it like if you're if you're really in the mood for a big mac say getting like even getting a steak even though it's better it doesn't quite hit the spot and it's not hard to imagine someone like picking up an issue of seven to eternity and wanting like jerome pena's really like fastidious um, focus on detail and being disappointed by this, even though I would say it's... James Harron is a very talented boy. Without question. Also, I noticed, though, that his art isn't quite as expressive as Harron's. Like, the detail can sometimes get in the way of the motion the feeling that these are characters emoting and acting. It's more apparent in the dialogue scenes of Opinia's work than it is in the action scenes. Like, the action scenes, you can show motion and animation by, like, having all the little things come off a character when they're hit. Like, showing the blood and the impact and the motion of various fluids as well as the indication of gravity and weight through the movement of clothes and hair. Yeah, a lot of speed lines in this one. Well, I think it works pretty well for an action scene. And I, I didn't think it was a bad comic in any way from an art perspective. There were parts I actually quite liked, like using the speed lines to kind of blur the figure manually or having an ink splatter effect to show blood. Yeah, I um I was I found some tutorial on how to do that once and apparently if you like dunk a toothbrush in ink and then flick it like run your um, finger along the bristles it'll flick like that and obviously you need to like cover up anything you don't want the splatter effect on 
But yeah. You mean there's actually a use for a toothbrush? Oh, dear. <laughs> what are you teaching those kids? But yes, um, going through this, though, it did feel a little bit like a fill-in because there are very few backgrounds in this, which is somewhat at odds with what um, Pena had set up in the previous issues. Yeah, I, we we read this issue and we were a little stuck on what we could talk about for it, so we went back and we both got the first trade, which is the first four issues by Apenya. And yeah, so it's definitely a comic I'll want to go back and read more of. The first impression I got when I read Seven to Eternity Going in Blind was similar to what you said when I gave you uh, the Mark Bagley Scarlet Spider comics. It just reads like a comic, in this case, a image comic, which isn't a bad thing. In fact, it's probably a good thing that something other than superheroes has proliferated so much in American comics that you can see generalities in style that, but still... Going in blind, it did seem like the prototypical modern image comic where it's a high-concept fantasy story with a, a lot of weird designs for characters and a lot of serious statements and world-building. Yeah. Trying to be a secure fantasy, so to speak, which isn't to say that it doesn't succeed at that. In terms of Seven to Eternity's story, I actually think it's quite interesting and clever and something I want to go back to, since the concept... Can I go into the concept a little bit here? Yeah, sure. I um, It would probably help me out a bit, too. Well, this is a dark fantasy world that's ruled by a godlike being called the Mud King, who... Brit- grants people whatever they wish in order to gain control of their will. So he's managed to gain the dominance of almost the entire populace, except for the Mozaks, who are basically humans, Anglo-Saxon humans. And the main character we don't see in these issues is a man named Adam, who's part of his family that's been opposing the Mud King for their for decades and decades and he's dying of like the consumption or some other vaguely defined medieval illness and he figures that he can save his people by volunteering to sell himself to the to the king knowing that he's not long lived anyway but what happens is he manages to, in like the fourth issue, get a group, join up with a group of other beings and take down the Mud King, except they find out they can't kill him or else everyone who's put themselves under his control will die. So they're looking for a way to free the world without effectively killing the world. Yeah, that that sounds about right. And, of course, there's a lot of characters who aren't human races who look kind of 
humanoid-ish, like kind of in this case, a lot of the the issue is focused on Jabalia, a woman who's kind of a red-skinned butterfly humanoid. She's a butterfly now? Well, she has wings. Huh, I didn't catch that. She, well, wings can be put under a shirt like Angel the X-Men used to do. And there's also the Mud King's design, which, as you might expect, he's made of mud, except for his glowing eyes. There's, which, and this also may have made reading it blind kind of difficult, because I didn't really know who the hell these guys were, and I couldn't really generalize them, because they were clearly of races I didn't know, fantasy races. Perhaps that makes me sound like a bigot against fantasy races but it does help when you have something to get into the world immediately going in blind so you're not just confused at what you're looking at yeah and i'm wondering how much the script was altered by knowing it wouldn't be drawn by by a pena Uh, one of the things that stood out to me from like i read issue eight with james harron first and then the first trade and the thing that jumped out to me about the first trade was that it had a lot more uh, quiet scenes and they'd spend longer hanging on a moment where this issue has has like three... Two, how many plot lines does it have going on? Two or three? It jumps back and forth between like the mansion place and this, under, this um, underground uh, factory thing. And that doesn't, yeah, it seems to be going very quickly. So it's possible that they're trying to wrap up some threads before a penny comes back. Also worth noting that Adam, who is the protagonist of other issues, doesn't appear here. So perhaps they put it, took him out of the picture because, so that someone following it for Adam's story wouldn't have to read these issues. They do have his daughter here, as well as some of the characters he teamed up with in earlier issues, but it does seem like he's kind of playing to it being a filler arc. Yeah, which which is interesting, because this is an independent comic, and like presumably issues can come out whenever, but I'm not going to pretend to know everything about the financial situation at Image or with... Uh, Rick Remenda specifically? Speaking as someone who does web comics, I do know that if you miss even a week of publication, the hits you receive will drop. You do need to keep up momentum on a series. That's why with Jupiter's Legacy, the gaps that Mark Miller had waiting for Frank Quietly to fill up were, were, were filled with the Jupiter's Circle prequel miniseries. Yeah, it's it's weird that one. Well, but... I the Jupiter's Circle comics weren't really anything to write home about. They weren't bad per se, but the, the comic basically exists because it quietly brings so much to it. So just seeing that kind of world with various artists they could get, including artists who were 
new to the industry and get being given a chance by a contest. It just it wasn't the same. But James Heron isn't quite a neophyte. He, he does have a lot of work elsewhere, like with BPRD. I was looking at his DeviantArt page, and he had some pretty cool stuff there. Yeah, I guess ultimately uh, what we have to say about Philid Comics is that, like, it's at some point art must give way to commerce. And in the same way that Opeña wouldn't really fit on a BPRD book, I'm not quite sure Harren fits all that well on an, on an Opeña book. Well, it's... With, if this were a Marvel and DC book, it'd be a bit more understandable. Perhaps disappointing when you like wait, are reading a series with John Cassidy and they have, instead of delaying it, they just let, say, Mark Bagley fill in. Or Paul Igor Corday. Yeah, who was filling in for... Frank quietly on Grant Morrison's X-Men and did such a rushed job that it kind of ruined his career, which was really unfortunate because he could do great work elsewhere. And with Mark Bagley, I'm saying this because this has happened quite a few times where he's come in just because of his incredible drawing speed to take over something that the previous artist couldn't finish. Yeah, it's a shame. And And although we're saying all this... Like when I imagine Neil's not above pulling me in to do a fill in on his comic if it comes to it. I actually am above fill ins for the main story. Fan art and side projects are completely different things, but the Wirecats is the one area of my life in which I have complete control. Oh. So that's why I draw everything, I color everything, I write everything. That's the reason why I've been doing comics all this time, because it is entirely my vision. So what do you do when you, like, are, like behind schedule? Or you know you're going to be behind schedule? I have taken breaks on weeks when I've been behind schedule, but the... The greatest way that I avoid being on off schedule is to not be off schedule, to just keep drawing whenever I have time. So I'm doing, in addition to my day job, I do a full page of color comics every week. Hmm. It's not the level of quality of Hiromo Pena, but I'm getting steadily better at it and it gives me like the sense that I'm doing something that's entirely me that's just an expression of everything I think and feel even if that doesn't always come across to the readers hmm, fair enough well maybe I I might have to pull you in to fill, do a fill in on some of my projects Huh, interesting. It'd be, I'd have to hear more about that, but back to this. Yeah, as as far as James Harron, uh, you should check out that uh, BPRD series he did. What was it called? Uh, BPRD, Hell on Earth, The Long something or other. The Long Death. It's 
Yes, it's a long, it's a five-issue spooky fight scene, which yeah, I think fits more to his strengths. Like he doesn't like kinetic energy and violence very well. Where Seven to Eternity has a long sequences of characters explaining their complicated, um, like in like relationships and like families and quests and all that. Well, will he be coming back to Seven to Eternity at any point? Oh, I. Yeah, I might come back when Apenya comes back. That well, probably get the second trade as well for the sake of completion because there wasn't anything in this that was bad. There were still quite a few things to like. It's kind of disappointing that the run of Opinio was broken up, but I can see why they did it. And the one thing that sold me on it was when I was reading the first trade and in order to get my dramatic reading quotient in for this episode... The Mud King's speech to Adam, the protagonist, on why he does what he does with controlling the population. So, I quote, I ask very little. I give people their heart's desires, and in turn, they let me see and hear the world, so I can keep them all safe. But, oh, you say, tyranny is wrong. Every sheep-loving milk drainer and half-wit dullard should have their vote counted. No, no political, no. You say that, but when we're talking about what we're doing for next time? Yes, this is as good a time as any to talk about next week's comics. Uh, What did you pick, Neil? I picked Captain America 25, written by Nick Spencer and illustrated, penciled, inked, and colored by Jesus Saiz, which deals with Secret Empire and the story where Nazi Captain America has taken over. And what was your pick? My pick is The Divided States of Hysteria, number three, by Howard Chaikin, the cover of which has a woman wearing just uh, like underwear with an American flag on it with tattoos of... A cross, a biohazard symbol, a star of David, a like the Islamic crescent, a swastika, a peace sign. I'm yes, I'm expecting this to be something that tries to be outrageous and in your face and shocking, and perhaps slightly ill-informed. At least this isn't the covered issue four that they had to pull with, which just had a hanging, a man hanging from a noose with his genitals torn off and the word, a hate slur against Muslims written on his chest. But anyway, that was Read It for the Pictures, number 11. But yeah, where can people find you online, Neil? I am at wirecats.com, W-Y-R-E-C-A-T-S, the comic where the cats versus dogs thing is taken to the socio-political scale. And you can find my stuff at daveclarkart.com, and that's Clark with an E. Anyway, until next time, see ya. Bye.